I want to welcome everybody to our talk on Sunday morning. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a mutual friend, Dr. Carl Hart, who just wrote the book, Drug Use for Grownups, in which he said, well, he says a number of things, most of which are compatible with what we say. And I just want to say up front, we're on his side. And I, we're going to discuss an interview that he had recently. And I'm sure that it's not the first time an interview has been like this for him. And it's certainly not going to be the last. Or he was sort of ganged up on for his point of view, which is mainly that, well, to say it in a few words, like he would say it, drugs aren't the problem. So anything that people think that uh, is a problem by virtue of drugs, he says, nope, think again. There's something deeper going on. Drugs aren't the problem. Most people can take drugs and they're okay to the extent that people are taking drugs and it's killing them or hurting them. It has to do with our policies around drugs and the mythology that drugs are bad. So he, he was would also say, you know, negative social conditions. Right. Coming out of the Miami ghetto. And he would have a, one little other category where they have some kind of psychological problem. I've heard him throw that in as a residual. True. And, and, and a myriad, myriad other things. Like he does talk about social depravity. And he talks about the possibility of psychological issues. He's looking at it from a strictly research lens where he has to talk to other researchers about if he has the findings that, well, drugs aren't the problem. For whatever strange reason, people put the onus on him to prove a negative. <laughs> like people are saying drugs are the problem. And he says, all right, let me test that. And then he says, uh, no, it looks like they're not. I said, well, prove it. And so for whatever reason he he does, he, you know, he takes on that challenge. And I think that might be part of what could be bogging him down in certain interviews, like the one I'm about to mention. So he was on a show called The Breakfast Club to talk about his new book, Drug Use for Grownups. The Breakfast Club is a, actually a radio station, one of the few legit radio stations left, um, hosted by a man named Charlemagne. He calls himself Charlemagne the God, DJ Envy, and Angela Yee. He's, uh, Carl goes on these shows, and especially on mainstream media, he's used to just blowing people's minds. Um, he'll either get into a heated debate, and those are things like Bill O'Reilly, who I know you know, and where he goes on and he expects the stupid debate, so he kind of has his talking points, or he talks to people who he knows are going to be sympathetic with him, like I think he believed that this crowd was going to be, where he has a more nurturing kind of an attitude, where you know, people might be ignorant and he says, all right, I, I think this might be a little bit of ignorance on your part, but certainly not malice. So let me meet you where you are and see if I can walk you through this. And then they say, oh my God, this is so crazy. Drugs aren't the problem. Uh, that's not exactly what happened here. You he, mentioned he was on a podcast with a guy who liked him a lot, who also kind of had a kickback reaction. Do you remember that one as well? Hmm. A famous national podcast that Who's the most famous guy? He likes Carl. Joe Rogan. Right. Rogan. Yeah, that's true. You know, Rogan uh, Rogan agreed with pretty much everything, and at least he listened to him. The, to the things that he disagreed with or some mythology that, that Rogan kind of spouted, Carl would push back and say, whoa, 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 let's talk about this. And Rogan would say, all right, well, tell me what. And so maybe he didn't get through to him, but at least he had the platform and time to listen. Well, it's unhostile. Right, exactly. So he's used to just saying stuff like, well, let's back up and look at the evidence. And he'll say, uh, please remember, I'm, I'm the one doing the research here. Or he'll make simple analogies, you know, 
because of their already simplistic kinds of ideas. Um, and he talks about things like drugs really are no doing drugs is no different than any other sort of activities that people can make cost benefit decisions about. Uh, and people tend to handle them just fine as long as they have the means and resources, education, all of the things we talk about. But as you say, this wasn't, um, this wasn't the kind of interview that he was expecting and he got stuck. The hosts and particularly Charlemagne and, and DJ Envy, actually, you probably noticed that the other host, the woman, Angela, was at least, she at least wanted to hear him. But they wanted him in the seat so that they could express their frustration about how naive this problem is. They had that like knee-jerk reaction that we're used to people having when you say, you know, drugs aren't terrible. I say, oh, wait a minute, my brother, my mother, my every, you know. So Hart decides to take his nurturing, almost harm reduction approach to ignorance. And the mistake he made is that he assumed that they wanted to learn from him. I really don't think they did. They wanted to be right. So he sat down, he got to their level to provide simple analogies and explanations. But because he simplified things, they jumped on that. You know, he was simplifying things so that he could meet them where they were and their understanding of what he was talking about. But then they jumped on his simple explanations and treated him like uh, his whole argument was just overly simplistic. And this kind of spiraled out of control. He kept meeting them at sort of a lower level tier of thinking than he was, and they would argue with this strange idea about what he was saying. So I just want to show one clip. I, it might sound confusing to me saying it. This is just one of a thousand examples, and it was almost painful to watch. Or heroin is is the evil thing to engage in. But those things hurt people, including the person using them. You know what I mean? Yeah, great question. So I didn't ask a question. Well, I was trying to save you, right? Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, uh, you should know that heroin is a medication that is approved for treatment. Heroin and morphine are essentially the same drug. Mm -hmm. The Bear Aspen Company, for example, in 1874, just attached two acetyl groups to morphine to make heroin. But the bottom line is that they're the same drug because the acetyl groups don't have any biological effects. Didn't Bayer used to be called heroin? No, no, oh, no. something like that? No, no. Human. I saw something about that. No, no. Uh, but the point is, is that heroin is a perfectly good pain reliever. It also mm -hmm. induces euphoria and a wide range of uh, uh, effects that we desire, like pleasure. Um, so when you say that it doesn't harm you, certainly it can harm you. If people overdo it and they don't know what they're doing, yeah, they, they certainly can be harmed. Um, just like when you drive a car. Uh, but is it addictive though? Is it is heroin addictive? Uh, is heroin addictive? Certainly can be addictive. Uh, you drink alcohol? Not really. Well, people drink alcohol. Alcohol is addictive. Um, sugar. Sugar. All of these sorts of things can be addictive. Uh, in my book, I'm trying to help people to understand what makes things addictive. Not the substance itself, because uh, as much as 75% of the people who use heroin are not addicted. They don't have any problem. What you say, what percentage? I'm sorry. As 70, much as 75%. 75%. So when you, say, when you see this, you say, all right, if most of the people who use that drug or any other drug for that matter are not addicted, then you have to look beyond the drug itself. Something that you and I are gonna get on about a little bit later, but one thing he does there is, so he asked him, isn't heroin addictive? And I don't think that Carl actually would say something is 
or isn't addictive. It's not really how he thinks about it, but he knows he has to speak that language. So he sort of goes down to talk about what is or isn't addictive. Obviously, it's like nothing's really addictive. It's just people can become addicted to something uh, it, given their circumstances. We'll talk. I, about I don't think he would go as far as we would go in that direction. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. The woman threw in sugar and yeah. Carl went along with that. But I believe in my experience with Carl, and I think we had a little conflict around that on the Addiction Theory Network. He doesn't want to, he doesn't have a theory of addiction. He doesn't want to expand the idea of addiction. Uh, when he says, sure, heroin can be addictive, but do you drink alcohol? Uh, you and I would say, well, there's no list of addictive things and non-addictive things. There's things that provide people with the kind of emotional uh, resonance, a reliability that they seek, a predictability. And I would also, I wouldn't say, I would say sugar is more pleasurable than heroin because heroin is a depressant drug and it operates primarily through creating an absence of pain. So I, uh, we tend to focus on the experience. We would say people become addicted to experiences. That Carl wouldn't say that. He might not say he. Uh, I, I guess I don't know when he says well, heroin is addictive and so is alcohol. Do, would you say that Carl doesn't have a list of addictive drugs? I say I would say he doesn't. Reading his book, whatever his beliefs were, and I've you can sort of see them uh, change and mature over the years if you i'm sure you know but in his book that's sort of what you said is what he was saying like there isn't you can't list all the things that are and aren't addictive you can just talk about why somebody runs into problems with them and, and why they don't so i think i do think he believes that now um but he's willing to go and say he's willing to think okay you're saying addictive and i know what you mean by that so let's just have that conversation I don't think he's very willing to, and I don't know if he really knows how he would go about pulling back and saying, well, let's talk about this word addictive for a minute. It's just not something he really discusses. He sort of understands the landscape, sees it, is familiar with it the same way that we are. I think believes the same things that we do about, you can't have a list of things that are, and then you have another list of things that aren't addictive, but he just doesn't talk. It's just not something he has language for or talk discusses very much. He, he tries to meet people where they are in that regard, and, and I don't think thinks much about it. He doesn't have a theory of addiction. He doesn't say, well, people get addicted to this experience because it serves a, well, it serves a function that has these kinds of kickbacks. He doesn't have an elaborated theory, but I, I basically we're in the same space. That's exactly where I'm going with it. Uh, unfortunately, he... I think we both think that to really engage in an interview like this and get to a place where he's making sense to these interviewers, he would have to come prepared with the with a, a larger package than he comes prepared with, not just drugs aren't the problem, um, so that he can anticipate people are going to bring up you know stories about their kids, their aunts and uncles who did have problems with drugs. He needs a broader analysis, which has to include not just people who use drugs with no problems, but what happens to the people who run into problems? Why do they run into problems? 
and the fact that they get be- tend to get better over time. How the, the, how do the they? Rogue, mm-hmm. You said the Rogan guy brought up. Well, I have a friend who's a whatever, a heroin addict. Uh, is that true? You recall that? No, yeah, it wasn't a heroin addict. It was he was telling a story about his friend. Rogan was saying, well, I have a friend who was uh, bit another guy's ear off because he was on PCP. Oh, I, Carl hates those stories the worst. So he dealt with it by, he didn't want to ruin the moment. So he laughed at him and said, well, I guess you got to get better friends. Are you, you oh, no, it's exactly. His, his best stories, which are true. Yeah. There's a whole mythology about people who take animal tranquilizers and PCP and meth and they do something totally crazy. And, I remember when Carl first started doing media, he would just, or if he was on a sympathetic show like Reason, he'd go, oh, for God's sake, uh, they talk about cutting off animals' heads. So that's one set, that set of bullshit myths is the one he's most direct on confronting. But um, I got kicked off the addiction theory network because... I can't go into all of it, but Carl got down on the group because they were too focused on addiction. And one of the other members, Mark Lewis, wrote me saying, where's Carl going with all this? He's really going off the deep end. And I was so amused by the whole thing that I put the interchange on Facebook. And so my good friends who run that network, uh, Nick Heather and Derek Heim, nobody's been better to me than them, threw me off. And then I got an email from Carl and I was afraid to open it. I never opened it for like six months. You did finally he, open it? <laughs> no, I never opened it. He called me. Uh-huh. And I, you know, he called me and he gave me, or he emailed me and said, call me. And I called him and he was hurt, you know, that I had, um, I don't know, revealed that or that I, you know, that I was amused by the conflict. But at that time, he he was he was, put, was a couple years ago now three maybe twenty seventeen four. He was putting it down as an academic preoccupation that people would care what addiction is, but I I think where we're coming is when he comes into that room and he says people take heroin they don't become addicted yep. and then somebody says well my mother became addicted or our what about that guy on television? And he and they'll say, well, that guy on television, they made that up, you know? Yeah. But he doesn't he doesn't have something to slot in to say. Exactly, well, exactly. You can't he can't just play whack-a-mole with all the dumb stories because those stories are meaningful to those people. They believe them for maybe dumb reasons, but they believe them and it's salient to them and they get a sensory cue to feel some way or some about those stories. And so just saying, well, your story is dumb, now let me talk about the data. Carol Tavers would tell us that no one's going to change their mind that way. So exactly what you're saying, he he'll need to not just dismiss those claims or just laugh them off or just if someone says, "Well, aren't things addictive?" He can't just go into those conversations saying, "Well, yeah, it's addictive, but you know, also other things are." There's a way that we think that we've seen that we understand that he could sort of lay out a broad theory and help people understand it um lay out a framework so that when people make those comments he can then say actually that's not compatible at all that language isn't even compatible at all with the thing that i'm talking about 
And I but think that thing, we lay out the criteria for addiction, absorbing experience that gives you certain needs, but it has a negative kickback. And then one thing you could do, um, the ICD-11 officially declares gaming addictive. So you could say, is gaming addictive to those people? He, Carl doesn't throw back to them. And you could say, do you think a gaming is addictive? And they would say, well, yeah, but not like heroin. And then, then Chris, you're some kind of crazy argument. What, you mean there's some of the, you know, DSM, the uh, American Psychiatric Manual says, it only uses the word addiction to apply to gambling, not gaming. Mm. So you say, well, are, is gaming addictive? And then you can say, well, why is it addictive? I gave you my criteria for why gaming can be addictive. It's very absorbing. A person loses, it provides them a feeling of reassurance and predictability. They lose track of the rest of their lives. That becomes more depreciated and then they're more reliant on it. That's my definition of addiction. Does that help you deal with gaming? And so, you know, I, they probably would agree that gaming was addictive. Mm. You know, most people kind of that experience. I mean, the other, Carl's, when he talks about science, he'll say, well, you know, aspirin or the heroin is just, you know, an attachment to, you know, this basic drug. And he'll talk about chemical structure. He talks about meth being the same chemical structure as Adderall. Mm -hmm. So he has technical knowledge that other people don't have. And so he announces these things and they're true. But they, you know, it has no re re resonance with their experience. And the method that I use in those situations, I, I think you've seen me, is, you know, to do recovery. I always use the example of smoking. I go, oh, to a room of people, what's the most addictive drug? And they say smoking. And then I say, oh, is anybody in this room quit smoking? And if you're in a recovering conference, you know, if there's 500 people, 300 of them, 400 have quit smoking. And then I go, oh, how did you quit smoking? Did you join a recovery group or did you use a chemical even, a drug? And sometimes nobody raises their hands. So I say, so you kit the toughest addiction without any sort of chemical aid or a recovery group. How's that possible? Mm. And then on the other hand, I, you know, around heroin, you know, of course, you you know, uh, what was that, Dreamland? Is that the name of the book where the guy, well, everybody knows that painkillers. Sam Canones. Canones, are, uh, everybody knows that they're opioids because that's what's mainly in the news. Yeah. And then, you know, I do this routine where I say to the room, well, has anybody ever taken an opioid painkiller? Everybody raises their hand. I say, well, did you become addicted? And nobody in the room has become addicted. I said, well, if they're so addictive, how's that possible? They so think people can think of that. Well, this, that's the perfect way to do it. You get people to start, begin by telling you what their experience and their beliefs are and then contradict their beliefs themselves, but you don't have to do anything. I think people think about it, just I want to say this before I lose the thought, like, well, most people get coronavirus and don't die from it, but still enough people get it and die from it. It's almost like everyone's, walking around thinking well this is just chance that's what carl's i think is missing from this discussion is that it comes across as though he's saying 
well, 75% of people are fine. And so there's this space where they say, well, what about those 25%? Just screw them all. Those people, you know, and he doesn't have, uh, of course, he talks sensibly about what it means that people become addicted or have problems with drugs or get hurt from drugs. You know, poison drug supply causes death. That has to do with policy. People become you know, dependent on drugs or believe that they're dependent on drugs to as a sole source of satisfaction in their lives for reasons that really have nothing to do with the drug. It's just all the experience. But as you say, he's not discuss. He doesn't have a format for discussing that. Whereas you can say, well, give me any drug. Well, you know, whatever you're worried about, tell me what you think is the worst case and we can do this exercise for all of them. And that's what he doesn't have. He doesn't have this general way to be able to walk people through on their own uh, what his theory is and then come to terms with it on their own. Do you call, would you call Carl a psychologist? Uh, no, I mean, no, no, he's not. He, and I don't think he would like to call himself one either. He was head of the Department of Psychology. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, I guess so. So he's a neuro... He's not, but he's, he's, not, he's, he's not a clinical a, psychologist, I guess, but... He's a neuroscientist. Right. And he has psychological explanations. He'll say, well, people who are troubled are more likely to get into a bed. But he, he doesn't deal in the psychological realm. And so he's got the difficulty, if you're a neuroscientist, yeah, Mark Lewis does a little bit better with that. He sort of says, well, people's brains develop. So he has some common ways, sense ways of talking about neuroscience. If you're going to talk about the effects of drugs based on laboratory research, um, well, they're going to have to take your word for it. And, right. You know, you're, it's going to be hard to relate. Right. Except Carl does have, I mean, some of the experiments, uh, neuro, he does neuroscience things, but he does psychology things. His most famous thing of that type was there's a whole body of research where they take addicted people and they say, well, what would it take to get them not to be addicted? That, that was mainly done with alcohol. There was a group called the City Hospital Group of Baltimore, which I spoke to. You can't do this research anymore. It's for reasons that will be obvious when I describe it. They'll take street alcoholics, guys who hang out in the street drinking from bottles, and they'll say, we'll give you, you know, $10 a day if you do an experiment. They bring him into a place where they can reside. And they say, uh, you can drink as much as you want in this little isolated cubicle, or there's a, you know, television room with the TV, nice warm sofas, other guys are hanging out there, and snacks, but you can't drink there. And so they drink less because they want to spend some time. So if you have a model of alcoholism, well, it's genetic. As soon as you taste the alcohol, you're out of control. It, that's not the way life works. Yeah. They're taking alcohol for a reason. But then if you give them some other reasons, well, they'll take less alcohol. This is, this is an aside. My wife has this. I think about this all the time. She's a supervisor at a, a clinical supervisor. And, uh, people spin the wheels all the time they have all these theories they've read these textbooks they have their ceus or whatever that they're fresh on their mind and she notices you know sometimes people just can't put get their mind back on practical real life situations so she asked a couple simple questions and one of them is all right tell me explain the problem a little bit and then they do and then she'll say two things what would make it better and what do you think would make it worse and that for, somehow puts people 
right in the moment and starts she, thinking more she learned that from you that's a little bit of your approach isn't it no i learned it from her oh, good <laughs> no enough. she's she's got she's had some brilliant tricks up her sleeve she's sneaky but um sorry for interrupting they're not trying to make the alcohol well they're the boston city hospital guys they can't do that research anymore mm -hmm. but there's a practical version of that research which is called wet housing which means Guys can come in off the street and live there and drink. And then they have a room and you can drink sort of as much as you want. But while they're in a room and they don't have to worry about being cold on the street, a people, if you can't walk around with a bottle of booze on the street, you know, somebody will take it or hit you over the head. You can store it. They actually start dropping their drink. They're still what we would call alcoholics. But in that comfortable setting, they drink less. They're not, they don't become social drinkers, but they become more relaxed and comfortable. And, you know, hopefully they're treated with respect. So that's an example where the I, eliminating, eliminating the concept of loss of control and saying that the environment affects even the worst street type drinkers. Um, uh, you can apply that and they'll stop being the worst street side drinkers. That's a real harm reduction approach. The Boston City Me Hospital guys were like scientists. Carl's version of that research is, you know, he would advertise for experienced methods. It's hard to get real drug addicts into labs. It's hard to find real drug addicts in New York City. So he gets experienced meth users into the lab and he says, well, I'll give you $5 or $10 if you don't take meth today. And they go, okay, all right. And guys have used that clinically. There's a group at the University of Vermont. They paid people to be sober. They paid people to show up for clean urines. So, you know, that's, you know, the, then the question becomes, well, who's going to, are you going to pay them $10 or $100 a day for the rest of their lives? So it's not a totally practical thing but it has a scientific implication. Well, if you think they're out of control, they're not out of control. They're just balancing their options and their options are different than yours and mine. So, and Carl did that research. So he'll refer to that, but he doesn't, he doesn't re refer to that kind of work. He doesn't have an elaborated model like that. Well, people are just balancing out their options, which he's doing that research and for some people in some situations with a certain outlook, taking meth or heroin or alcohol, that's their best deal. That's the way they're going to go. And unless you can change the rewards in their life by giving them, you can give money. We, in the life process program, we would say, well, we're going to try and help them develop skills that will allow them to get other rewards to outweigh the rewards of the whatever. In our case, you know, gambling or shopping or sex or food, but but we're going to try and help them balance that scale in a different way. So we have, we we he starts out with drugs, and he knows drugs don't do what people say they do. Can I um, and, before you go? Oh no, go ahead. Go on, go on. Before you go on any further, I just want to. Just to make clear, I, I, I want to review what, sort of what I said so far in a couple words. 
I watched this interview that he was. First of all, I read his book, Drug Use for Grownups. Excellent book. And, and you uh, interviewed him. And I interviewed him. And it was an outstanding, the book was an outstanding proof um, and thesis about what real problems really are. And I agree with him wholeheartedly about it. And I think you do too. He was on this interview and I was just watching the extent to which people can be ignorant and knowingly and sort of wanting, you know, wanting to be ignorant almost. It was painful to watch this whole interview. We enjoy him and the work that he's doing and the message that he's putting out, including I do drugs. I'm all right. Um, I do drugs responsibly. I can, I'm an adult. I can think about it. And even he even says things like, uh, well, you know, I do chemically very pure drugs so that I, that's part of the way that I weigh the risk and the reward, you know, and by, I think that everyone should be. Well, he mentioned, he mentioned overdose and he says, well, overdose, which we know is a mixture of drugs. Mm. And so I'm able to use drugs safely because I'm able to get better heroin. If you're yeah. going to start getting stuff off the street, that's the danger. That he's saying I can get something that's chemically pure. And the argument to him is, well, isn't that nice? You can get something that's chemically pure. What about these other people? And really he should be saying, well, no. Yeah. What about those other people is what I'm saying. You know, people should be able to access what I'm accessing and they're not able to because we have this uh, backwards sort of idea that drugs are horrible. Let's let's make sure that we wipe them out of existence, even though we know that's not possible. And now what we have is just uh, completely unsafe. But he doesn't he, he does he get into drug. He doesn't get into heroin maintenance and drug consumption sites, does he? Or yeah, does he does. He? Yeah, he does. Okay. No, I mean, he's he he went the depth. I was. Um, so that's the policy angle. Yeah. Yeah. I so, get but, pure but, drugs, but you can, they can make them for other people too. He, he, even as a chapter, which I was surprised to see in the book called uh, Addiction is Not a Brain Disease, where he does talk about the reasons why it's important that we understand that there's not something pathological that's caused by drugs or that's triggered by drugs or that's genetic and, you know, jump started by drugs to a vulnerable genetic population or something like that. But he doesn't, as you're mentioning right now, get into an addiction theory, really. And I think maybe part of that for him and for others is, well, it's not my bailiwick. It's not my area specialty. I don't want to argue this is a worthless argument about, um, you know, what addiction is or doesn't exist or something like that. I just want to get into policy and saving lives. And you will argue, actually, it's incredibly important to have a uh, sensible theory about what addiction is an understanding of what it is and, and way to talk about it and you're saying with, that would help him yeah get on television shows and podcasts you know in a way this is this his first book was called um high, high price, price. Which gets into that research i was describing in a way it, it implies the meth research where you know, if you give people money, they'll stop taking meth. Mm -hmm. And it's not that much money. Um, but he, he had the same problem because that book is, there's Car Carl Hart's an appealing guy. He's a good looking guy. He's got that great dreadlocks. He's athletic and he looks good. He really looked good out there in that show. That was a nice suit he had on. I really admired that. Um, he's obviously a brilliant man. And obviously people are, you know, high prices 
how did the guy get to compose himself this way? You know, being raised somewhere in Miami, you know, right. right. There's the personal experience. And so that was half his book. Even then that was half his book. And then the other half of his book is, well, you know, I figured out it wasn't drugs. I figured out it wasn't drugs because I went back to Miami and after the crack of, uh, epidemic of the 80s the people were in the same situation so they weren't taking crack big deal and he this is an extension of that and i figured it out because he took some recreational drugs younger but later in life now he's taking some heroin and cocaine he talks about taking some speed in the book and when even based on that book people couldn't deal comfortably with those two parts i right. saw him interviewed by a man named chris hayes on msm oh yeah Yep, Chris Hayes. People love him. Uh, you know, they say they want to hear his story. And then when he switched into the story, that the problem he has on in this show, it goes beyond. And the and the Rogan show, and he's fighting a ton of myths. It's not that, you know, they're reacting to him. They're reacting, well, they believe these things. Not he's here to tell them everything you believe. Another thing he says, everything you believe about drugs is wrong something i i've said a lot as well when i so i would see carl speak the first time i saw him speak he was being interviewed by a man i know a, a friend of mine john tierney maya was there when i came in maya said uh carl stanton's here we had never met and carl was very warm and i said how's carl know me although ethan had said well carl thinks the same way about drugs as you and after, and he said, at that time, he said, well, 80 to 90% of people who take drugs have no problems with it. He said, well, heroin withdrawal isn't what they make it out to be. You know, it's like a bad cold. People get over it all the time. And afterwards, because a guy came up to me because he had seen, because uh, Carl, Carl began. But every time I've seen Carl speak, he begins by saying, well, Stanton feels in the audience. Much of what I say, most of what I say varies. I, you know, heard originally from him. He said that in his interview with you. And then the guy comes up to me and said, what he said about drugs and heroin isn't true, is it? <laughs> and I said, well, you got the wrong message. You're asking the wrong guy. Yeah, right. And then Carl afterwards <laughs> came up to me and said, well, how do you deal with all this? And my joke is Carl's looking to me as, as, as a role model when he's a professor of psychiatry and psychology at Columbia. So I, but what he's talking about is he's always encountered a lot. As soon as he's espoused the idea that the drugs are not the problem, everything you believe about drugs is wrong, he, he's in a conflict situation. He's used to that. So before, so, uh, before today, you said, when I told you I wanted to talk about this, you said the same things that I am are landing in the same place. And you said there's basically five ways to know what the reality of drug use is in other words that most use is normal and most people recover naturally you already talked about well he has carl has personal experience growing up in miami seeing people use drugs around him figuring out the drugs aren't the problem he has done extensive lab research and you, you talked about similarly uh in baltimore city hospital and johns hopkins uh can you so talk and, uh, and the, the third kind is the community. He's now using personal experience, right? Well, I've taken heroin. Look at me; I'm a regular guy, right? And so, you're in a different ballpark when you're going to rely on that. 
people are going to say, well, what about my aunt? You know, exactly. She came with her. And, right. and you didn't include this in the clip, but along the way, Charlemagne said to him, are you going to show that piece or? Uh, the Yeah, yeah. Yes. Let's do it right now. Watching your body language and I see you shaking. I'm like, okay, is he going through a withdrawal or is he upset about Give something? me a break, man. I'm being honest. Come on. <laughs> you know, you're upset, clearly. Yeah, you, you know, it's like, first of all, I have too much respect for you. Too mm -hmm. much respect for you and too much respect for you not to come here and be correct. You know, I obviously I am upset about what has been said about me mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I have children. I have a family. I have all of these sorts of things. Would you want your children to... to indulge in drug use because you know growing up i i, I see you from miami you from a poverty-stricken area you've you've sold drugs you use drugs as a kid uh, i'm gonna let it play drugs, but you know this, is, the good. Thing this that is interesting okay the thing you're talking about comes a little bit after this, this. Drug, don't use cigarettes it's a gateway to stronger drugs would you advise your kids to use drugs and tell your kids about using drugs um, it's like saying, would you advise your kids to have sex, right? Uh, you why, know, why no. is sex always the correlation? <laughs> because everybody, I hope, has had sex. But, you know, but, and, but and if so my kids I'm are getting to, married, uh, well, I'll tell you. And, but if and, my kids are getting married, yeah, well, you say, want them to have sex, and, right? and sex is pleasurable, right? And people want that sort of pleasure. Correct. So when you said, would you advise your kids to engage in drugs? And I wouldn't advise them, but that's not my concern, whether they do it or not. My concern is keeping them safe. So my kids telling them wear a condom. Exactly. Don't like buy that. it off the street. Exactly, bro. Don't buy it off the street. Exactly. Because the da the the most dangerous thing about drugs to most people who are black and brown is not the drugs. It's the police. And so that's why I would really tell people don't but you see, don't know I, what's in it sometimes too. But I tell my kids don't use drugs. Andrew, that's a great point, man. You don't know what's see, in it. But you tell your kids don't use drugs. Like I tell my kids don't use drugs. I don't I'm not gonna tell them go to the store where you know what's in the drugs. I'm just saying don't use it at all. People used to be like that about marijuana too. They used to be like, Don't smoke weed, it's terrible. Now it's illegal. And but I'm telling my kids don't use heroin Can we come back to your point, please? Yes, go ahead. The point you made was um if uh, what we don't know what's in these substances on the street, you're can, we can move ahead to uh, you were We're a little different. We wrote a book out, Growing Addiction, um, and I had an earlier book, Addiction Proof Your Child, because we have a general approach to addiction. Because we're thinking, well, you can get addicted to sex or love. There are people who kill themselves. You don't want your kid to go to college fall in love with somebody, they break up and they shoot themselves, which happens. So we have a psychological resilience establishing mechanisms. Uh, I'm, Carl would, I've heard him speak about this. He'll say, well, give people solid information, take good drugs, don't get bad drugs. We're psychologists or developmentalists. And we would say, you need to allow your child to have an engagement, a positive engagement with life, which I'm sure Carl does in real life. You want them to have interests, you want them to have positive relationships, you want them to have positive values. And you want, you and I would say, we, you want them to have independent experience. Um, there's another new book out, it's, uh, I don't know the title, it's a woman writing about, she took her small daughter, quite small, and went around the world seeing how people raise children. That's a bold book. And the bottom line was, it's incredible how fucked up we are as a society because 
in 90% or more of the places that she went, child rearing wasn't as painful as it is for us. The kids were cooperative. They didn't fight. They contributed to the household. Mm. Um, they were generous spirited. And in a way, it's because we have too much luxury. And as we say, it's a way because we're so afraid we don't allow kids or we don't feel we can allow kids to experience life on their own. But the kids she exposes her own daughter to, you know, they have to help out around the house, but often, in some cases, in a really basic way, you know, like in Nome, Alaska, or the, or the family won't survive. She actually interacts with, you know, people out in the wilderness. And we've lost an engagement with life and an ability to experience life directly on your own, to experience rewards and punishment, and to know what you have to do, which screws up the whole addiction equation. So we have a whole developmental model. His answer was kind of complex. Well, I wouldn't tell my kids to take drugs or take sex. I would, okay, I would get your point. Um, we would go beyond that. We say, well, we tell our kids, we have a positive goal with our kids to be able to interact positively with themselves, with the world, with other people. That's the best protection against addiction. It's meta learning, like what we talked about last week. We would want our kids, maybe we wouldn't say, do have sex, don't have sex, do have drugs, don't have drugs. We would say, whatever you are experiencing, we want you to think about reasons why you're doing the things, what you're getting out of it, what are the risks involved in it, who is it affecting, you know, how is it helping or affecting you? Which is that? And what are your reasons? alternatives? And, and, and actually make them aware of addiction. Yeah. Um, and of course, in the case of that, we're getting to a place where people are going to have, people have conversations like this around alcohol. Um, you know, I'm Jewish and I was married to Romanian women, woman. We introduced alcohol to our children when they were young, when they were teenagers. Um, we're getting to a place where parents are going to have to have that kind of concept around marijuana when marijuana is legal everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you might say, well, you sort of have to have that concept. And, and you and we talk about it now, growing addiction. If you're giving your kids, if you're giving your kids, uh, you know, uh, Adderall, they have to have some concept of, you know, what's this drug doing and why am I taking it? Right. And obviously, at some point, your kid's going to take a painkiller and you, you'll probably give it to them, you know, because they'll have some kind of medical emergency. So the ability to sort out what a drug is doing for you and how you respond to it, a kind of mindfulness, as you're describing, looking at life and what the options are. At one point, my uh, it's still on the internet, I think, I took Anna and we were interviewed by CNN. That was a good interview. And then they did, uh, they did a video interview, but then they did it in my apartment with Anna. Uh, and Anna said, uh, you know, I'm at NYU and some of the kids there, they drink all weekend. You know, my parents gave me alcohol at, when I wanted it when <laughs> I was younger. It doesn't have that kind of a impact for me. And then the last sentence in the interview, it's my favorite thing. I didn't, I don't know why I didn't put it in the memoir. She said, my parents aren't spending all that money to send me to NYU for me to drink, which is a other way of saying, you know, I'm, I got a job here. Yeah. I'm trying to make some place in life. Yeah. So Carl's a, he, 
writes a lot of lightning. He's a lightning rod because he's so prominent. And he's, I mean, it, he's the he's the only African American to achieve tenure at Columbia University in a scientific field. I mean, the only one. Sort of like if Martin Luther King came out, or you know, Ralph Bunch, or you know the guy who did all the research with peanuts, whatever his name was, and said, oh, well, I take heroin. It's sort of like, oh my, that's why I think these are African-American interviewers. They're going, oh my God, this guy's supposed to be a role model. Yeah, right, right. By the way, the woman, she was good. Yeah. Everything she said made sense. She said, well, you know, uh, you have to tell people about marijuana. It's it's legal or it's going to be legal. So they're going to have to have some like, well, okay, I can take it. How are you going to take it? She was, uh, she talked about, you know, she said sugar. She talked about impurities. She was the one, uh, she was the go-to person. But I I see uh, you got to the point where Carl got rankled. Are you going through withdrawal now? That was what the one guy said. Yeah, right. But at a later point, Charlemagne did say something. You saw Carl speak in Burlington. Yeah. And on the panel... He said, well, um, I'll take heroin before they go to a tense meeting. I'll relax the night before. And Sally Sattel said, you did what? (laughs) Sally Sattel, I've drunk wine with Sally Sattel, but Sally Sattel doesn't take marijuana, let alone heroin. Um, Well, you shouldn't tell people that. And Carl's point is, well, how do people know that people can control drugs? The people that control drugs, because they can control drugs, Never tell anybody about it. Yeah, Sally's answer was, she, Sally wrote a Wall Street Journal uh, review of Carl's book, and a review was basically demonstrated in her response that day also, which was that, I get what you're saying, just don't tell people that. You know, they're going to get the wrong idea. And Carl's whole book is, I mean, if there's one thing that he said <laughs> on your show, well, people who use drugs sensibly have to reveal that, not the reason we have all these myths or one important reason we have all these myths is because those people don't tell anybody. Right. So her review was essentially um, a, a recap of, of what, of what she said then. <laughs> but Charlemagne said to him, the guy said, are you going through withdrawal now? And Carl says, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. But Charlemagne said, when was the last time you took heroin? And Carl said, a year ago and i'll put that somewhere i'll go back and i'll put that in somewhere and and charlemagne said well i had the impression you know it's he wouldn't put it this way you know i take heroin once a year you know okay i'm not fine you know it's like if you're at a hospital once a year you whatever they give you there you're not addicted to it I thought you took, he said something like, I thought you took it regularly. And based on that interchange with Sally, where he described, well, I go to a meeting. So in a way, Carl, he lost, Charlemagne, that was his best point of contact. Carl lost a little traction there. He's a heroin user. If you don't use a drug for a year, you're sort of a non-user. Well, okay. But just in his defense, I yes, I take your point and I agree with you. Uh, and I see why that was a he, that was a sticking point right there, or a, you know, uh, it made it difficult to proceed in that conversation with his theory. And but, it undercut his point of view. His thing was when he's in diff- when he's in different countries, he was splitting his time between Switzerland 
and uh, New York. And so he was able to get chemically pure heroin in Switzerland where, where he was using pretty regularly. And the, the, the answer to the question, well, when's the last time you used is like, I don't know, a year ago, I can't, who can get clean, you know, pure heroin now during this pandemic? I, I can't. So right. I think that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the two things, one, he can go maybe use it once he'll get it. He'll use it when he has it. So he's not one of these guys that's uh, taking drugs every single day. Like maybe he's, trying to portray himself as or even once a week you know? but he's but he's also not probably a once a year guy if he could get it more often and he knew that it was safe you'd probably be using it much more frequently now the example i use you know so the guy might say i'm i'm hypothesizing now mm. well if you use it regularly then you probably become addicted then i would turn to the woman right. and say well if you take sugar every day do you become addicted or mm -hmm. I get Carl. I would go back with to what Carl said. Um, if you have sex every day, you become addicted because sex has a more direct impact on the pleasure centers of the brain. That was another thing you and I discuss, discussed about the interview. Um, uh, well, uh, Carl said, "Well, sex can be dangerous too. You can get a, a STD." But I would answer that question. Um, people get into all kinds of mayhem, self-destructive and otherwise, through sex and love. Yeah. The greatest, I mean, one of my lines is, the greatest source of murder and suicide is love. If love were a drug, it would be banned. Carl, Carl's not, do you think Carl would say sex is addictive? Mm. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think he, I think he thinks about things the same way. You know, I don't think he makes a distinction between drugs or something like sex. I, I, dis I, don't, I don't, I disagree. I mean, Carl is a drug researcher. Every mm -hmm. example he used, he talked about, he'll talk about meth, he'll talk about Adderall, he'll talk about heroin, he'll talk about fentanyl, he'll talk about alcohol. It, I don't, he doesn't, I, I believe that argument we had on the Addiction Theory Network there's a group of people, it's a large group. There are people like you and I who think that the, the dangers of drugs are overdrawn A and B, they're misstated so that people aren't prepared well for dealing with drugs. That's where you and I and Carl are in the same bailiwick. He, as we've been saying, he doesn't have a larger vision of addiction, of how children avoid addiction. Or I, I, think, uh, I think one of the things he was complaining about and so i know some of the people there say well if addiction's a bad if used badly with regard to heroin and drugs why would you expand the use of the term addiction to whole new areas like sex and love that's going crazier and gambling right. and what's our answer to that well well uh, i see what you're saying now so he i still stand by my point that i don't think he makes an incredible distinction between drugs and those things i think it's more that he needs to respond to people's mythology around drugs. People aren't sending the same mythology all the time about sex, but you're right. It's like, there's the idea that you're talking about is someone might say addiction's complicated enough. Why do you have to add more? And we're saying addiction is being made so complicated because we're excluding the rest of life from the theory or the, the idea about it. It goes back to the original point. There aren't a pile of things that are addictive and a pile of things that aren't addictive, which Carl might go along with. 
that doesn't mean that it, but he knows, and he says, well, heroin can be, and alcohol can be addictive. And you and I would say, well, there's a bunch of powerful experiences and those powerful gambling, something that can really absorb you, sex, love, you, you can imagine them. Some people get totally absorbed in shopping. Some people exercise. When you can get totally absorbed in something so that it rules your consciousness in a way that can allay all of your anxieties, be totally encompassing and predictable, that, that's a dangerous involvement. And we would and, agree with him. He would agree probably with us that I, I think he could say all that and he would say, yeah, for sure at this point in his career. And I think he's moved along a little. And that's important and, because it means that, well, any it, whatever could be all encompassing like that, it means people get do it to destruction because of some lack of belief that they can generate it somewhere else in their lives. They don't have balance in their lives. And that's why I think what you're saying, that's why it's important to understand all of that and to be, you know, you put that out front rather than addic addiction remaining this strange concept that no one really defines. And you're kind of talking around each other about what it is. Right. Cause he never examples. really, when I give a workshop, I'm going to say, well, this is what addiction is. I'll show right. a cycle of addiction. It's in our book. Right. Well, let's, let's close with, we talk about children a lot. You have a small girl, a couple of years old. I have two adult daughters, one over 40 and one over 30 and an adult son. Um, I sometimes wonder, people talk about bad things that happen to girls, women. I've never had those worries about my two daughters, let alone there's, I mean, at this point in time, I think it's a fair statement. Well, given, you know, what Governor Cuomo has been up to with like 25 year old, they're not interns, they're full professionals. You know, leaning on them. What if the young woman they you know had given in and had an affair with him? Where would that have ended up? He's right. sixty-three. She's. I mean, that that would have been murder for her. Uh, perhaps at this point in time, a lot of people are more worried about their daughters getting in a destructive sexual or love relationship. That one that was so unequal, and she would have been in love with him, or who knows? It wouldn't have come out well for her. Um, and so. I don't believe my daughters, I wouldn't say life has been totally smooth for them, but neither of them is going to be put upon. Neither of them is going to be destroyed or participate in a destructive relationship. I believe they wouldn't, that. They wouldn't put all their eggs in the basket of the whatever that reward is to the extent that they would allow themselves to be taken advantage of in some way. They would say, this is too much. I have other things to, I've got to do in life. That's one thing. So they would be unlikely to be addicted thing is they have good home, good instincts about avoiding destructive things they're aware of they're mindful of when something's hurting them so you would say and i i don't know if i said it they had a mother you know if a relationship is harmful to you with drugs or alcohol or gambling or shopping or with another human being well that's not a place you want to be so you have to be both care enough about yourself to know that, that you don't want to have negative things done to you and be self-respecting enough that you won't let negative things be done to you. And you have to be mindful enough to have your sensors out. Like, I, I mean, I know I've had conversations with Anna where she'd say, well, that guy's just going in the wrong direction. She, mm. 
She once went out with a guy who knew my book, Love and Addiction. He disliked it. She didn't break up with him because of that. But she should have. <laughs> she said to me, Dad, I'm never going to have a... I'm never going to get in a relationship with a recovering guy again. There's mm. uh, that 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 was her bottom line there. So all right, we um, Carl's a famous, remarkable man. He's got a lot of guts. I mean, you might say, you know, well, we would ask the opposite question from Sally. Sally saying, "Why are you telling people this? Just keep it to yourself." And Carl is driven by an impulse that he knows these things aren't true about drugs. Mm. He knows the beliefs about drugs are harmful, especially to people in his community or you know, the community he grew up in. And he feels intellectually needful. He has the intellectual integrity to say, I know this to be untrue and this to be true. I'm going to come out and say it. And, you know, I know I did talk to Carl about this. He had a, I mean, you can't fire the only African-American tenured scientist in the history of a university. Yeah. On the other hand, there's got to be some repercussions out there, you know, in the board of directors or whatever there is at Columbia, you know, and he's, a, I think you mentioned this, he's apprehensive about the kind of reactions he gets. Are you going to be a bad role model to your community when he goes on a radio show? So anybody who has that kind of guts to stand up and he's, He's got a lot, you know, he's got the most to lose. Yeah. Uh, when you're in a really strong position in life, you're in the most danger of having, and the, the guy said, well, what about your kids? So on the one hand, he's going to say, well, I want my kids, if they, I don't tell my kids that they drugs, but if they take drugs, they should get healthy drugs. Uh, we would go farther and say, well, they should be healthful in general and mindful about anything they use. But the guy might've said, well, your kids are going to see you on television and you're going to, they're going to say, oh, your father takes heroin. How do you feel about that? So that's, that takes a certain amount of guts and understanding. He, hopefully he has that kind of relationship with his children. Will they understand where he's coming from? One thing I regret about speaking with him, maybe I will again sometime, is I asked him about that. Um, I didn't realize all of his kids were grown, but I said, so what kinds of conversations do you have with your kids about drug taking? And I was very... I don't know him very well. I think he has some younger kids. With no, he's. She said they're all adults now. They all even, are. Even a even a twenty year old. I think that's his youngest. But I, I don't know him well enough. I wanted to make sure in all of my questions that he knew I wasn't going to be asking one of those sneaky bullshit questions that he always gets. So he said, uh, "Well, let me just be clear that our kids are my kids are past the drug experiment stage." And what I was really on my mind, but I didn't say was, well, tell me about that. What, what does that mean? Why is there a distinction between uh, the drug experiment stage and, and now that they're adults, there's not that anymore. Can you talk about that area? Because you bit? take drugs, which is what the guy said. Right, right, right. Well, Zach, he could tell, A, he knows where you're coming from. Yeah. And B, you have a, an ability not to put people back on their... Um, Back on their haunches. I wanted, to, I wanted to address that, actually, because I think you get a bad rap for putting people back on their haunches. But what I've learned about you is that there's the kind of disagreeable where someone with some wacky theory who's killing people out there. OK, you can just say, hey, how's that working for you? That's one. But the 
what you're doing here and I think what you do with so many, you know, Sally Sattel, Mark Lewis, uh, Maya Solovitz, people who are basically aligned with you. And I remember uh, Johan saying to you, I hope this isn't too much to say, but remember I'm saying, ahead, you, well, how can you do that? How can you be so alienating or something with, uh, with the uh, people who agree with you 99%. And I've come to learn, you, you've actually really taught me this. This is a very adult thing to do, to be disagreeable to the people who you want to be on your side and moving forward and doing well. I, I take that as a deep sign of respect. If you care enough to go into depth about what you might disagree with and what somebody else could do better. And that's what I think we're, we're trying to do now. And it's also a kind of my greatest intellectual integrity is going to be shared with the people that I'm closest to. Right. I'm not going to misrepresent when I was married for 30 years, I was married to a woman who had a strong outlook and agreement with mine i mean i uh, i guess i already knew this when we got together i didn't do a quiz like well do you want children <laughs> what religious beliefs do you have what's your finance but we had the same attitude towards alcohol and drugs i couldn't i could never be involved in a i could in a relationship with somebody who is now and is the same well she's married um but i don't have it in me to repress what I deeply believe in with people I care about and respect, I have to lay it out there and say, here. So with all respect and knowing that we admire you and love you and, <laughs> and love what you're doing, Carl, that's that's what we want to say today. We, we watched this stupid interview where we had somebody with, we know has something so important to say, uh, isn't able to say it. And partially because he's being kind enough not to, just sort of torch them on their own show, but partly because maybe he hasn't developed the sort of broad framework and uh, language to be able to just sort of, you know, to lay it out there and then let them come to him now that he's, you know, laid everything there. So we'd like that. We'd like it if people like Carl would talk a little bit more about what addiction means and why it's actually a meaningful concept if you could, if you could get around to it. We believe it's, you know, that book behind you says outgrowing addiction. So addiction exists. Mm. You say, Carl, well, he did say people get addicted to heroin and alcohol. He got that far. Well, all right. So we critiqued, we kibitzed <laughs> Carl. He's out there taking a lot of heat. I've taken a little heat in my lifetime. You've taken a little heat in your lifetime, you know, in local venues, you're a friendly guy, but some people dislike your point of view. And I expect you, this is something I said to you earlier. I'm, I'm going to do an interview. I won't say what it is, but I'm going to do an interview. And I was thinking, well, you did such a good job of getting to the bottom of what I was trying to think about with Carl. Will you do that with me? You know, when I, next time I do an interview, when I'm missing the point or something, will you, yeah, I would like to your response to that. So Well, all right. I'll be happy it. to give it. Yeah, but yeah. I, I'm aware that you were on your county council. I mean, oh, yeah. you've been in many situations. Well, you don't, you don't look for arguments, mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't say things. Not, you don't say things that aren't true, that mm -hmm. you don't believe, A. And we might name a couple of it at least one addiction theorist who does say things that he knows are, aren't true. But B, you won't, you really won't sit quietly if you're involved in something with kids mm. or with drugs and people lay something out on the table. 
well, there's too many prescription drugs. That's why every, you know, every, these kids out here are taking it. You're not going to, you're not going to keep silent. You're not, Sally Sattel could have the same complaint about you. Why didn't you just keep quiet? You don't have to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And to your, you're not a disagreeable, but when you say it, I'm not a disagreeable person, but I, I will disagree. So that's yeah. all right. Let's float this out there and, you know, maybe Carl will hear about it. All right. Happy Sunday, everybody. And Stanton, thank you so much for doing this with me. Pleasure.